Amen. Great stuff. You know, we just sang about one of the most stunning, mind-blowing truths in all of Scripture. And that is God's faithfulness to us in spite of our unfaithfulness. <laughs> it just, it's just mind-blowing. So that was a sermon in itself. So we're going to pray and go home. How about that? Look, I'm a little messed up this morning. In all confession, I left my study and teaching Bible at home. Now, the reason is because Jen and I have been doing our Bible reading every night, and I left it by my chair. Aren't you proud of me? Thank you. I just wanted to tell you all that, but I stole one at church out of the lost and found. <laughs> so I have someone's Bible. This is how it came. So if, it, if it's yours, I don't see a name in it, but if it is, we'll put it on RAM and let everybody know that you hadn't had your Bible for a year, okay? <laughs> so anyway, it's a little messed up, so if something happens, you give me some grace, all right? Okay, it is great to be with you this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. <clears throat> On the last night of the Feast of Tabernacles, also known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Booths, it was a once-a-year celebration, the Feast of Tabernacles, lasted a week, and it was to celebrate God's great provision for His people through their desert sojourney. The last night of this feast, there was an awesome nighttime ceremony rarely talked about. It was called the Illumination of the Temple. It was in the treasury room. If you Google a picture of the Jewish temple, you would enter in the East Gate and enter into what is known as the treasury room. In that room are four massive golden candelabras. They are topped with torches. The candelabras were as tall as the temple walls, 40 feet. And in the top was a huge bowl that held approximately 65 liters of oil. And what would happen is on that night, the illumination ceremony, is priests would climb ladders that reached up to the top and they would light those torches and the flames were so huge that lit up all of Jerusalem, obviously including the temple. And then young priests and men of piety would dance before the torches and sing songs of God's praises for the great pillar of fire that became, that stayed between them and the Egyptians to protect them and to lead them in the darkness for 40 years in the desert. It was after this ceremony, in the same treasury room, on the next morning, with those great torches still smoldering, that Jesus lifted his voice to the crowd and declared, I am the light of the world. In effect, Jesus was saying that the pillar of fire that came between you and the Egyptians the fire that illuminated the night in the desert, that's me. I am here permanently to protect you, not from the wrath of the Egyptians, 
but them from the wrath of God my Father. I am the light of the world, he declared. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now you know that our whole series in Ephesians has been called what? Life and light. And the reason is that the first three chapters of the book talk about God through Christ raising dead men from the dead and giving them spiritual and eternal life. And chapters 4 through 6 talk about us as light. And this morning our text in verse 8 says that very thing. You are the light in the Lord. So Paul is really getting down this morning to the details of how you and I as children of the light should relate to a morally dark world. We're not navigating the darkness of the desert. We're navigating the darkness of this world. Another way to put it is how do you and I live in the world without becoming like the world? In the world, but not of the world. That's what Jesus or Paul is talking about this morning. Historically, answering that question, I think there's been, there's been a lot of wrong, but two wrong extremes. One on the right has been, uh, or on the left, I would say, is attempting to relate to the lost. They have become like the world by playing down the biblical truths that are offensive to worldly people. Think progressive, liberal, doctrinal churches. It is rampant in our world today. The other side, on the right side, have been wrong while they have, because they have tried to separate themselves from this evil world. And in doing so, they have no, as light, have no impact on a dark world. The problem is, if you try to do this, think monastery, you carry your own evilness into that monastery. <laughs> you can't get away from it. Thankfully, Jesus clearly tells us the biblical balance in his high priestly prayer of John 17. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And so we're going to unpack that this morning. So Paul, in Ephesians 5, this morning, tells us to leave the light on as you relate to your godless culture in order for two things, not to be like them and to eventually reach them. I want to remind us that even as we go through Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, and I put some context in your notes, this is not just a list of our ethical code, folks. This is the code of the Lord Jesus himself. It is a person. It's not just a list of to-dos and to-don'ts. So as we unpack that let's remember let me read ephesians 5 6 for us let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of god comes <clears throat> upon the sons of disobedience so it says in your note notes a motivational warning for people of the light 
That's exactly what Paul does here. He reminds his readers what he has been writing about since the beginning of chapter 4. And it's this, big picture that sexual sin, filthy foolish talk, and greed are not fitting for God's people. And all God's people should say what? Amen. This warning, though, in some ways is intensified. He's been talking about it, but he intensifies it here in verse 6. He says, these are the kind of things, chapters 4 and 5, that will exclude you from the kingdom of God, and rightly so, bring about the wrath of God. And this wrath is talking about wrath and the final judgment. Now, I, I want to be clear this morning. This particular verse can be troublesome for some of us, but I want to tell you it's not referring to Christians nor the discipline of Christians. Though Christians clearly can participate in seasons and at times and in episodes of these kind of sins, we probably all are guilty at some point or another. But here's the truth. We got to remember the truth. That's why it's important to know your Bible. If one is a Christian, God's wrath has been completely satisfied. The biblical term, the theological term, is propitiation, to satisfy the wrath of God with the shed blood of Christ for those who trust in it and it alone. It has been satisfied forever. And here's the reality. If you are a true Christ follower, what is true of you, especially as you grow, is when you sin, these kind of sins, or any sin, we admit it, we hate it, we're convicted by it, and we know over and over in time, God creates this need in us that we need him in order not to sin. Like, that is how a believer sees that, knowing the whole time that his sins, the wrath of God has been satisfied and his sins completely forgiven. The non-Christian, on the other hand, experiences no conviction, makes excuses for it, justifies, continues in it, and it becomes their lifestyle. So I want to tell you this morning, if you're living as Paul has been describing in Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5 so far, if you're living antithetical to that, opposite of that, Paul would tell you in the book of 1 Corinthians to examine yourself. The first thing we need to say is, are you a Christ follower? If you're not, the invitation is to come to Christ. We good there? And then Paul adds in six in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. These empty words are smooth words that deny your actions is sin, and then they mischaracterize God's truth and God's character. <clears throat> let me just give you some examples. These empty words, these smooth words, it actually means words with no content of truth. They're lies, and they're twisted, and they're perverted, and they're, they're, they're manipulated in such a way that it appeals to our emotions and our feelings and our own thoughts about what's good and right and true and wrong. 
It's statements like this. It's empty words like this. God's goal is for you to be happy. God's goal is to glorify himself, period. And you and I are most happy when we are most holy. You made a decision when you were nine years old, so you're good. Folks, our churches are slammed full of non-Christians who think they're Christians, who's living antithetical to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they think they're Christians because they walk some aisle at age nine. God is too kind to condemn people to hell. No, God is perfectly just and holy. And every person who goes to hell will have chosen it because they chose not to trust in Christ. Love wins in the end. God knows we are frail. He gets us. Everyone goes to heaven. You're a good person, and God knows that. He knows your heart. You are okay the way you are, and you can stay just like you are. You are who you feel you are. Be who you feel that you are. And the classic one from Genesis 3, did God really say? The misinterpretations are absolutely mind-blowing. Just scroll through Twitter at some point and see what pastors are saying about texts that have been clearly defined. Just yesterday, I saw a respected theologian at a respected seminary talk about, and look, this is not about the vaccines. You ain't never heard anybody talk about the vaccines up here, have you? But he was comparing the vaccines to the redemption of the Lord Jesus. And it even redeemed abortion because they used cells from aborted babies to make it. I'm just going. And the responses were like, dude, this is a bad take for a guy who has a seminary PhD that is legit doctrinally. It's out there. These folks with empty words, there's no truth content in them. He says, let none of them deceive you. Who are these folks? It'd be anyone, any Christian, any non-Christian that will tell you that worldly living is okay and it has no consequence. Paul would disagree. I would disagree. This church would disagree. It is because of these people living this way, antithetical to the ways of God, that the wrath of God will come. And many times, let me just add this little note, the reason me or you get duped is because we don't know the scriptures. So crucial. Let me just give you a very practical example. <clears throat> there was a friend of our family who had a son. I was on sabbatical. And I got a call. No, no, no. Monty was on sabbatical, so it was three years ago. This young man was 38, 40 years old. He was about to be approved as an elder to church much like ours. And I get a call from his father-in-law, and I say, hello. And there's weeping on the other end, sobbing. And he said his son-in-law had just confessed, this man who's up for an eldership at much church like ours, to 25-plus affairs. He has left his wife of 17 years and his five young children. For the last three years, he's been living with a girl, unmarried, 
and just posted yesterday. That's why it was on my mind. Meet my new bride. They got married a few weeks ago. And there was about 50 congratulations. Good job. Congratulations. As I scrolled down his Facebook post, the next post was, come join us for this camp where I get to tell kids about our Lord. You see the duplicity there? That's exactly what Paul is talking about. That man is no more a Christian than I'm a flying pig. I ain't never flew. Well, a couple times I have. I did dunk a few times. It's just tragic. Paul says, motivational warning. Examine yourself, verse 6. And then Paul tells us about the light. Light is distinct from darkness, verses 7 through 10. Let me read those verses quickly. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let me show you these pictures here. So light is distinct from darkness. This first, this, this picture shows us that. It's a clear line, is it not, between where light starts and where light stops. Light is distinct from darkness. And you'd have to be insane to think that you, you, that there's no difference in it. It's clearly different. Spiritually, though, what we as humans love to do is we love to live in the gray. We love to live in the shadows, if you would, where we can both enjoy the fleeting, Scripture says, pleasures of sin, and at the same time present ourselves as having no sin. And if you don't understand that about your own humanness, understand it today. That's part of what we do. Remember Adam and Eve? They sinned and they hid and they put fig leaves to cover themselves up. It is as natural from your ancestors as blinking is. Paul says, do not become partners or connected with those who live like my friend's son-in-law or who love to live in the shadows. Do not be connected with those who live like this because they are the ones that use these empty words with no truth in the content to lead you into disobedience. It's the picture of Proverbs, one of the Proverbs. It says, one bad apple spoils the whole what? Bunch. You know the Bible. Second Corinthians puts it this way when talking about marriage. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers or maybe even a business partnership. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? It has none. It is distinct. There is light and there is dark. Which leads us really to verses 8 through 10. It is very important to know, I think, as we unpack this, what what is light and what is dark? What is Paul speaking of here specifically? Light is a symbol for both the intellect and the morals. 
In the intellect, it refers to truth and morally refers to holiness. Or we could say the things that please the Lord, as verse 10 tells us. So living in light means to live in truth and holiness. Darkness, on the other hand, refers to ignorance and morally refers to evil. So you remember a few weeks ago I said that sin, maybe we could define sin as a malfunction of the mind or a mind that has malfunctioned. Darkness means that our minds are darkened and because of that our actions become morally evil or dark. So here, light and darkness is a contrast, if you would, of both truth and lies and holiness, things that please the Lord and things that don't. Here's how Psalm 119 put it. It said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And then on the other side, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, In whom the God of this age has blinded the minds to the light of his glorious gospel. And when it says blinded there, just as a reminder, God's not being mean. These people have said with their words in their lives, they have said, I want nothing to do with you. I want to live this way. And the text over and over tells us God gave them over to give them exactly what they want. And they've grown so far down in the hole they can't see out, can't see the sun, can't see the light. And then here Paul shocks them in verse 8, you are light in the Lord. <clears throat> One writer put that statement this way. He says, there is no text in all of Scripture as strong in its explanation of what conversion is for the believer. At the moment we believe and trust Christ, there is a light that comes on. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to grow but there's a light on when you were in complete darkness. Imagine yourself down a 100-foot tunnel, complete black dark, and somebody drops a light down. It's still dark, but there's a light on. There is hope in the house. Yes, once we lived in darkness and therefore were darkness, and now as Christ followers, we are to live in the light and our light. But notice what Paul says, it's not in ourselves, it is who? Light in the Lord. And to be clear, I put this quote in your notes, the Christian's life is always a call to be who God says we are in Christ. We are light, Paul says, therefore the command walk as a child of the light. Paul is driving home this point. That our light is derived from Jesus with not one ray, not one ounce of it coming from ourselves, but also in this sort of mystery, in this mystery and marvelous way, he's declaring what Matthew 13, 43 says. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father because they have been connected all eternity, with the light. So as connected, as folks who are connected to the light, we have a chance to shine his light to the world. Here's how he puts it, Paul puts it in Colossians 1. It says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So 
just for very practical purposes here, Paul is not calling for us to have no connection with non-Christians. But he is saying, don't live like they live. That God, in his great mercy, what we sang about that last song, his faithfulness to us, has enlightened our minds with his truth. And to completely pull away from non-Christians means there's no opportunity to shine the light to anyone. So Paul is saying we are a distinct people. A people who reflect the light of Christ like the moon reflects the sun. There's your metaphor. Matter of fact, I thought about who we are as God's people this week. We haven't said this in any time recently from the pulpit. The word, the church, the people of God is the word ecclesia. The first part, ek, means out from, and kelio, the second part of the word, means called ones. You and I are the ones who have been called out of darkness in the light, by the light, to walk in the light. You do know that Jesus spent a lot of time hanging with sinful folk. Isn't that amazing? The perfect, holy one of God. Hanging with sinful folk. But did you notice? Not once did he change. He called them to change. He was distinct from them. And then verses 9 and 10. says, as the light of Christ is reflected through the prisms of our lives, Paul gives us big picture. Not the details, more the big picture what should this light produce? Three things. He says, goodness. We sing about God's goodness. It really is generosity. It's how we relate to people. We relate to people with the goodness that God has related us to. Secondly, he said it should produce righteousness. Where we have integrity in all of our dealings with God and man that what we say and what we do is, is matching up. There's, there's not a separation there. That's called maturity. And then truth, which is simply the absence of falsehood. These are the ethics or fruits of the light. And in those three things, Paul says, we discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew 7. Beware of false prophets. You shall know them by their what? Fruits. Our fruits of goodness. And truth, what was the second one? Righteousness, thank you, just want to make sure you're listening. Is what verifies that we are children of the light. Does it make us the light? But it does verify. Lastly, not only is light distinct from darkness, but light is different than darkness. Different than darkness. Let me read verses 11 through 14. It says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So look at these two pictures. So here's one which I've seen a many a time 
on the early mornings chasing the wild gopper. Cody's been with me. Cody, how many times we started just like that? And I want to tell you something. I've been chasing the wild gobbler for 36 years. And I wish I had a dollar for every mile I walked in pitch black dark woods. And I'm going to tell you, every time I do, it's still spooky. And I got a 12-gauge shotgun and many times a 9-millimeter. And I'll hoop, 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 right? I mean, it's just spooky. And look, I'm a woodsman. I'm an outdoorsman. But let me tell you what's nice, this next picture. That sun starts rising, and you tell me which set of woods you want to walk through. <laughs> there ain't no doubt it's the second one, right? <clears throat> Light is different than darkness. It even makes you feel different, real and perceived. Scientists have researched what darkness does to us as humans. We suffer deep mood swings. We can't concentrate. Feelings of worthlessness, weight gain, more likely to lie and cheat, make crucial mistakes, depression. And yet light, we know, does just the opposite. I lived in Cincinnati for 12 years. November, December, January, February, it ain't nothing but straight gray, no sunlight. What's that thing called? Sad, seasonal, crazy disorder, right? Been there. Paul is saying here, keep the light on and let it do what it's supposed to do. It sanctifies. It sanitizes. It shows you what's true and right and good. Paul is saying, keep the light on. It, change, it changes everything around it. And the separation here that Paul is calling for is not really separation. It is confrontation. Confrontation means an eyeball to eyeball. That word expose, look at it. Verse 11, it says, expose them. He's not speaking of people. He's speaking of their lies. He's speaking of the things they say that will lead you astray, that will call the wrath of God upon you. Or upon folks. Verse 13, anything exposed by the light, he says, becomes visible. This word exposed means correcting or convincing. It is speaking and living the truth of God in the midst of the dark world in which you live. Verse 12 says it is too sh shameful to even speak of the things they do in secret. And, and I can't even say the things that he's referring to if you do a little study from this pulpit. Just think of the worst debauchery that you've ever heard of. G.K. Chesterton, though, brings it down to our, our level. He says, nothing makes us so lonely as our secrets because a man is not what he or others think he is. He is what he hides. That's a word from us. We're going to have a chance to respond to that at the end of the sermon. But what are you hiding? That's who you are. We're only as sick as our secrets. Living a life with secrets for the Christian is like walking back in the jail cell that you've been freed from and locking yourself in. Then verse 14, it's really a call for transformation. The only way a person can change is to be exposed to the light and truth that God brings. 
And as they counter the light, they got a chance to be transformed. And so what Paul does in verse 14, uh, scholars can't agree. Either he's quoting an, a hymn that was used at the time or parts of metaphorically from Isaiah 61. But at the end of the day, what he does, he gives us this picture of what the light does, which is to simply save people. <laughs> That's a picture of salvation. Awake, O sleeper, you're a dead you're in the dark, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So I thought this morning what would be very helpful for you and I is that what does it look like? What does it practically look like to expose the lies of this dark world with the light of Christ shining through us? And if there's a thousand ways to do it wrong, and we probably, if we've tried, we start there at some point, and we've certainly witnessed it. So let me start here practically. First, our heart, heart posture is important. Speak the truth in love. Paul's talked about that in Ephesians. Do you know it is not very loving to people to be silent or to lie when you know the truth? Truth and love go together. Second heart posture to be aware of would be Galatians 6.1. He says, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in the transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. The goal is restoration, not shame, not to destroy them. The goal is to restore them if they're a believer in a spirit of gentleness, and here's why, because you got to keep watching yourself lest you too be in that position. So once you get the heart posture right, that means there's no ranting, there's no ra ranting and raving and raging, the three R's, there's no name calling, it's not personal. Then you speak the truth of the light of the world with both believer, if they're in sin, episodically or non-believer if they are simply don't know the light. Here's what it may sound like. We, as Christ followers, believe sexuality is confined to God's command of one man and one woman in an unbreakable bond of marriage. In our culture, if you're going to stand up for the Lord Jesus and be a light in darkness, that is a must-say. Anything out of that context, I don't care if it's your kid or your cousin or your good friend who seems to be a nice person, anything outside of that is sin and what brings the wrath of God. Secondly, we believe gender and biology to go hand in hand and are fixed realities from God. This goes against transgender identity, transitioning, hormone uh, or reassignment surgeries, non-binary identification, ide ideologies that says there's more than two genders. In our culture, that's the light. We teach that babies in the womb have dignity and value and deserve protection from being exterminated and murdered. This goes against abortion on a demand. My body, my choice. Abortion is health care. Fetuses aren't humans. That's light. We believe Jesus is the only way to forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And that goes against that all roads leads to heaven. 
That goes against saying rest in peace to famous people who die. There is no peace if there is no Christ. It goes against atheism, good work salvation. We're all good people. Go to heaven. And lastly, just examples. There are many more, but we believe we are made by God and are accountable to live under his commands. This goes against self as God, living your truth, consequence has uh, with your free choices, no consequences with your free choices. Follow your heart, oh my. Be true to yourself and do what makes you happy. I just, my mom used to say that all the time, son, I just want you to be happy. This past few weeks, a friend of mine called me, spoke to me very clearly about a friend of his who was living in debauchery. What should I do? He said what he thought. I said, I agree with you totally, which was to call or text him back and lay out very clearly just the truth. No shame, no name calling, no you're an idiot. Because this guy years earlier had helped him actually come to Christ. And he did just that. It's all you can do. As clear as you can make it. Here's what God says on the matter. His friend, his friend broke in the night. And wept. Called him back. And said, I am turning. And going back to where I once came. Going back home. Folks, sin loses its power when we turn the light on. You ever walked into a room, maybe college, maybe home growing up, where there was, you turn the light on and you see cockroaches? Anybody ever done that? Yeah. Do those cockroaches, when you turn the light on in a dark room, they just stay there and go, hey, what's up, big, what's up, big Jeff? No, what do they do? They run. That's what the temptation of sin does when you and I bring it to the light and we can see it for what it is. Why it's in the dark, it feels like it takes us over. It feels like I can't get past it. But when we bring it to God and others and say, this is me, I've been hiding this and I see it for what it is, the temptation to continue in it nearly goes away. It loses its power in the light. Ken Hughes put it this way, The siren songs of darkness promise great things, but give only the fruit of Sodom. Darkness shelters evil and helps it fester. The darkness has no shame. The leaven of sin silently swells in the darkness until the whole life is infected. That's what unrepentant sin does to each of us. So this morning, for our so what, I want to, the so what this morning is repentance. <laughs> and so I want to set it up because that's the often used words in churches. We have no idea what it means nor how to do it. So stay with me here. This is our so what, and then we're going to have a prayer time afterwards, as Rob mentioned earlier. Repentance is hard, and it's always has been. 
but I can tell you what is easy. Let me tell you some things that are easy. Regret is easy. Regret is just feeling bad that you did something that caused you to experience a consequence that you did not desire. Embarrassment is easy. means you got caught and now everyone knows you are not the person you wanted them to think you were. And you're embarrassed. Apology is pretty easy comparatively to repentance. An apology with no repentance is not real repentance. It's, it sort of sounds like, well, I'm sorry if I offended you. Ever got one of those? Yeah? You ever said one of those? <laughs> I need some head nods. Yeah, okay, just checking. I'm like, maybe I'm the only one. <laughs> I'm so sorry I hurt you. You know, and do that. It's simply remorse or toxic shame. Repentance, though, involves several things. It is a change of mind and a change of behavior. First, we change our minds about ourselves. We say to ourselves over and over, because this is what God says, that we are not fundamentally good people deep down. I am not the center of the universe, and I'm not the king of the world or even my own life. Then we change our mind about sin. I am responsible for my actions, no matter, no matter what. My past hurts do not excuse my present failings. My offenses against God and others are not trivial. I do not live or think as I should. We change our mind about God. We say he is trustworthy. His word is true. He is able to forgive and change me. I owe my life and my allegiance to him. In him alone, he is my king. He wants what is good for me. And what is good for his glory. And the last part about repentance is the change of behavior. The three mind changes have to happen or the change of behavior doesn't. It takes time, certainly. We change, as theologians say, from one degree of glory to another. But it certainly bears fruit. And we change not to become the light, but we change... Because we already are. So take a few minutes this morning. I know in a room this big, I am no fool to sin. That there are things that you are hiding that are in the dark. And I want you first, as John plays, to go before the Lord. And confess those. And speak to those. As I talked about repentance. Take a minute to do just that. We'll find you out.